Now, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up, turn over to Hebrews chapter 7. We will be uh, starting today at verse 11 and going through the end of the chapter. If you remember last week, we went through verse 11, but we really didn't touch on it. So hear the word of the Lord as he inspired it and has preserved us for us today. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there's a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in their office. But he holds the priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Now, I once heard that the book of Hebrews was about two things. Revelation and redemption. Revelation. The author is showing us and helping us understand how God's revelation, what it means to us. So he's explaining a lot of things. And secondly, it's about redemption, showing us what God has done for us. 
you remember, we've been driving in a theme since the beginning of the book, that Jesus is better. better. Yes. And so what we find here today is this revelation. The author is showing us God's revelation and pointing you back in the Holy Word. And then he's reminding you that that is completely fulfilled by the redemption of Jesus Christ. Now, this passage is going to be a little complicated for you because you are not a first century Jew. You did not grow up in the sacrificial system. So I'm going to have to help you and cue you to understand this passage. But when you grasp these concepts, this is one of those beautiful passages that you will just go, wow, what an amazing thing, the unfolding redemption of God as he has chosen to redeem me from the foundation of the earth. And so last week we learned that Melchizedek was presented to us as an Old Testament type. And that was a technical term that we used, that a type foreshadows what's to come. And we saw that Melchizedek, if you remember he was presented, he had no father, no mother, at least it's not recorded. Yes, we know he did have those. He had no genealogy recorded. He foreshadows Jesus Christ who was Jesus, our perfect high priest. He became our high priest, not by genealogy. He was not of the tribe of Levi, so he didn't qualify. He could not be a priest. But how did he qualify? By the excellence of his holiness, his purity. And so that was the key. And Melchizedek is recorded for us as having no beginning or end. We're not told his birth or his death, which is very rare in the Old Testament. Most of the time you're given these details. But Melchizedek has no beginning or end. When we look at Jesus Christ, our great high priest, he is an eternal high priest. He has no beginning or end. And we see the similarity coming forward there. And also, remember, we looked at the fact that Abraham, the great father of the Jewish nation, he tithed to Melchizedek. He gave a tenth of his spoils to Melchizedek. And the point that the author made for us is that if Melchizedek ties to Abraham and Jesus is in the line of Melchizedek, who's the bigger one? Who's the superior one? And his logic is this, Jesus Christ. He's in the line of Melchizedek and Abraham was basically bowing down and offering through Abraham. And Jesus follows Melchizedek. And so all of the Old Testament system of sacrifice under Abraham, the law... That's secondary to the replacement of what God intended through Jesus Christ. And so, what we saw is that Jesus Christ is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He demonstrates that the Levitical system was imperfect. It was only for a season. And as we look at that, we will see the majesty and the holiness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, there's one phrase I want you to note in today's text. You will find it in verses 19 and 25. Notice it says, draw near to God. That is a sort of a code word, if you will, I believe, for the whole idea of depending upon God alone for your salvation. When you draw near to God, if you go through the scriptures and you look when it means to draw near to God, it's, Lord, I'm helpless. But you are the creator, you are the redeemer, and I draw near to you. And so it's trusting in Christ for salvation within our covenant. It's receiving forgiveness of our sins, resting in the truth of God's word. 
Lord, this world doesn't make sense, but your word does, and I'm going to believe that. It's boldly coming to God when you have difficulties and saying, help, Daddy, I need your help. That's what it means to draw near to God. And just a couple of few words unpacks that whole thing, and you'll see that as we go through this text. And in fact, I would submit to you that our author is making this phrase, draw near to God, central to his argument. And he's talking about priests. Because what was the role of a priest? It was to help the Old Testament worshiper draw near to God. Because in the Old Covenant, you could not just waltz into the Holy of Holies. You remember, it was separated by a thick curtain. And we'll talk more about that. We have needed someone who enables us to draw near to God ever since, oh yeah, Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember them? When they rebelled against God and they were cast out of fellowship with God, they were cast out of the garden. And since then, we've always needed an intercessor who will bring us back to God because we are sinners. He is perfectly holy. And that's why, look at verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, he's saying, the Levitical priesthood, you would come to the priest, you'd offer your sacrifice, but it could never cleanse you and purify you the way you needed He says, why did you need anything else? But that's why somebody in the order of Melchizedek was raised up by God. And we'll see more of that later. So, many people ask, well, why did the Old Testament priesthood even exist? Why did God go through all the charades, if you will, and all the pomp and the circumstance of the Old Testament priesthood? Basically, it boils down to this. The Old Testament priesthood is just like Melchizedek, a type. It is pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ, God's ultimate plan for your and my salvation, for the salvation of all sinners who would draw near to him. When you think about it, every sacrifice in the Holy Scriptures, they point to Jesus Christ, the ultimate sacrifice on the cross, where he shed his blood for us. See, even Father Abraham, and this is mentioned in our text or alluded to, Father Abraham knew when God asked him to sacrifice his son Isaac. Remember Genesis 22? Remember that story? That says, offer your son. Listen to Genesis 22.7. And they're going up to the place where they're going to have the sacrifice. And Isaac is there and he says, Dad. And Abraham said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, I see the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Remember that? Verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them, together. Abraham, in faith, even at that point, was looking to the holy God of the universe to provide what was needed even when he was asked to sacrifice his son. And God delivered, didn't he? A ram caught in the bush to substitute for his son. Looking forward in faith, that's what Abraham was doing, just as we must look forward in faith. Just as the Old Testament people who gave sacrifices, they didn't believe that the blood of that bull or goat would cleanse them. But it looked forward to God's provision. God will provide. And so, when you look at the Old and the New Covenants, the Old Testament and the New Testament is how we often call it, You realize that salvation is the same in both? 
The people under the Old Covenant, they didn't look to the sacrifices being the means of their salvation. We'll see that later in the book of Hebrews, that the blood of goats and bulls cannot cleanse. But, as they did these sacrifices, they were looking in faith to the coming Messiah that God had promised. All the way from Genesis 3.15, we find an unfolding plan of redemption. God keeps going, if you will. He's got these really cloudy mirrors. And the further you get in the Old Testament, it gets a little clearer and a little clearer until finally, what happened? The Virgin Mary was with child. And Jesus Christ, our Savior, came in the flesh. And he was the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And so God has used history to unfold this perfect plan of redemption for sinners. We look back to the cross for our salvation A done deal in history. You can look it up. You can see what year are we in. 2023? Approximately that many years from the birth of Christ. And so, ah, yeah, there's a few years here and there off maybe, but we see that it affects even our calendar. The reality of God's redemption of mankind. Think about it this way for the Old Testament worshiper. When they went in, they went into the temple They had temple courts. In other words, the temple was divided up. If you've got a study Bible, you may have seen in your Bible that the temple is divided into all these different courts. And what you may not know as a New Testament believer is only certain people were allowed in certain courts. You had the court of the Gentiles, the court of women, the court of the Jews, the court of the priests, and then finally, the ultimate place, the Holy of Holies. And pretty much anybody could come into the court of the Gentiles. But then you had the court of the women, that women and Jewish men could go into there. But then you had the court of the Jews, and only Jewish men could go into there. And then you had the court of the priests, and only priests could go there. And then finally, the Holy of Holies. And this was to teach the people that you can't come to God on your own terms. The Holy of Holies, how, did, how was that entered? Not by a common person. It was entered by the high priest. Once a year, he got the golden ticket, if you will, to come in on the Day of Atonement. And what did he have to do before he went into the Holy of Holies? As we've seen, he had to cleanse for his own sins first. He had to purify himself ritually. And then enter the Holy of Holies. And the nation would wait with bated breath Would God atone and cover for our sins one more year? And that was the reality of the Jewish system of worship under the Old Covenant. And so, what we see there is as the author of Hebrews is speaking to these Jewish believers, they all understood this system. Many of them had practiced it and grown up with it. And now they had come to believe Jesus Christ. And you remember, some of them were were stumbling backwards and going, you know, we really loved all those fancy robes and, oh, the smell of that incense and the sights and the sounds. It was high church, if you will. And they're like, we come to Jesus and it's a simple service. We just say we love Jesus and we praise him and we hear the word preached. And Where's all the pomp and circumstance? And so they were running back to that. And so our author in seven, he's going, whoa, 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 time out, time out. Jesus is the ultimate high priest. 
You don't need the incense. You don't need the robes. You don't need all that pomp and circumstance. Come, because you can draw near to God. How do we know that? What happened that most all Jews would know when Jesus Christ was crucified? Do you remember that? The scriptures declare that the curtain separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was torn from top to bottom when Jesus was crucified. What was the point? People are going, but we've been separated from the Holy of Holies. And now God has symbolically torn this curtain, Mark 15, 38, from top to bottom, and we can now draw near to God. Because Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, He is the ultimate sacrifice. And we no longer need priests to come in and draw near to God. And they got that. And so, the lesson for us is this. You can draw near to God through Jesus Christ, the ultimate high priest. That's all you need. You do not need rituals. You do not need pomp and circumstance. You don't need all the stuff of the high church. It's like I spent eight years up in New York and a lot of the Catholics, the Roman Catholics up there, loved all of the rituals and the incense and the robes and the, the processionals. And it's really cool when you look at it. But it really does nothing in helping you draw near to God. It may make you feel good, but that's it. And so, be careful of adding anything to what Jesus Christ has done. That's what the author is bringing us back. And beware, we're in the season of Lent right now. There will be some, maybe even some of your friends who will place ashes on your head. Or you'll fast. Be careful. Because those things, if we believe they will help us draw near to God, no. Only Jesus Christ and His work is the only thing that will allow us to draw near to God. Now some will say, well, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today. Isn't that a ritual? And a... Well, Jesus Christ commanded us that, did He not? He said, this do in remembrance of me. Question, the shorter catechism, question number 96. What is the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is a sacrament wherein by the giving and receiving of bread and wine, According to Christ's appointment, his death is showed forth, and worthy receivers are made partakers of his body and blood with all his benefits to their spiritual nourishment and growth and grace. So realize, it is not the bread and the wine that is doing something. It is your faith as you look to those items. You will be nourished spiritually, and you will draw near to God. Because that's what Christ has commanded us to do. It's not some magic ritual, but it is commandment of faith, and we do it in obedience. And we must always remember that we are under God's grace under the terms of the new covenant. Look at what he says in verse 12. For when there's a change in the priesthood, the old's gone, there's necessarily a change in the law. Jesus Christ becomes everything that you need. And that's the point. He is indeed our better high priest. And he has fulfilled everything that needs to be done. Now as we move on in the passage in verses 12 through 16, you'll see the pastor now begins to speak about this change of priesthood and, and that another tribe and Judah and all this. And 
we're just sort of going, what's he talking about? Because you don't understand these things. If you remember last week, we talked about the Old Testament priesthood. And they had to prove they were the tribe of Levi. Remember Ezra and Nehemiah? They couldn't find their birth certificates. They were disqualified because they couldn't prove their genealogy. The Old Covenant required the law to be met. The point that the author is making here is Jesus, the great high priest, he's from the tribe of Judah. You can't be from the tribe of Judah and serve as a high priest. But yes, you can. Notice, verse 16, he has become a priest how? Not on the basis of the legal requirements of genealogy. Jesus didn't need a birth certificate. But on what? The power of his indestructible life. He was tempted in every way, just as we are, but yet without sin. He was qualified by his holiness. If we go back and we read in the Gospels, you'll see the Gospels make it very clear that Jesus Christ is from the tribe of Judah. And the logic of the pastor is this. Jesus didn't have a right to serve as an old covenant priest. And that's exactly the point. Because God had a better plan. The Old Covenant was just to remind us and, and tell people throughout history and give a, a, a foreshadowing God was going to do something better for your salvation and mine. And that is, He was going to send Jesus Christ as our great high priest to redeem us. And so Jesus, after the order of Melchizedek, because of His purity of life, has indeed overcome. I love how the, John writes in Revelation 5.5, 5, if you will, you turn to the end of the book and look. He says this, And one of the elders said unto me, Weep no more, for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. What's he talking about? Jesus Christ, the great high priest, who went to the cross without sin and became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness. He did the ultimate priestly work in redeeming us. And what happens? Look at 19. What happens? A better hope has been introduced. And what's the result of it? You and I, we can draw near to God through the work of Jesus Christ. That's critical and key. And he is reminding our Jewish believers, this is the hope that we have. Then he goes on and he makes one other big argument here. And it's this. Look at 21. But this one, Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Okay, what are you talking about oaths now, Pastor? Why? Why are you talking about oaths? Because Jesus was appointed by God with an oath. Remember when we did Hebrews 6? Verse 17, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Remember that? You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And in fact, in chapter 6, verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Remember when I read Genesis 22? God had sworn to Abraham these promises. 
But when we look into Scripture, there are two great oaths. And they relate to the Old Testament and the New Testament. They relate to the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And each are sworn by an oath by God. And we may miss this. But as we look at it, it's the heart of biblical faith when we look at these two oaths. And remember, what's the old do? The old foreshadows the new covenant, the new and the better covenant, right? So let's look at the old, the first oath. If you turn to Genesis 22, verse 15, you'll see this. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven, and he said, By myself I have sworn. Hear an oath? God says, I swear by myself. Because you have done this, Abraham, and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Do you hear it? There's two parts to that oath. One is, Abraham, you're going to be a great nation. And we look at the Jewish nation, it was massive. But the second part is for us. And in your offspring, was Jesus descended from Abraham? You betcha. He was of the tribe of Judah, but he still was descended from Abraham, and all the nations of the earth are blessed. We have a great salvation in Jesus Christ, do we not? And so the first oath in the Old Covenant is beginning to set forth the terms of the Old Covenant, but it also foreshadows all the nations of the earth, through the new covenant. Isn't that amazing? And so, all of Abraham's children by faith, remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 19? You can be a child of Abraham. Even if you're not a Jew, you can be a child of Abraham, how? By faith. As you draw near to God, as you depend upon God, as you look to God in faith, you are a child of Abraham, according to Romans 4.19. And then we look at the second oath. Notice what he says there, verse 21. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. We've seen over these past couple of chapters that he's been building up to this, and he's reminding us that God keeps making this oath that Jesus is better. He's the guarantor of a better covenant. He's in the order of Melchizedek. And so Jesus Christ is qualified to serve as the great high priest. Why? Because God first said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. He was qualified by his holiness, his perfection. He didn't need to be cleansed of sin. He could serve as that great high priest because God the Father made that oath. Think about it this way. God the Father sent Jesus Christ, his son, God incarnate, to live A life of obedience that Adam didn't live. That's why he's called the second Adam. He came to die as an atoning sacrifice. How did John put it? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus was crucified, buried, and raised up on the third day. And he's now seated at the right hand of God where he intercedes for all those who draw near to God. He continues to serve as a high priest, interceding for us. 
Remember Paul writes in Romans, when, when everything's hitting the fan and you just don't even know how to pray and you groan, Holy Spirit picks up your groanings and he says, I got this. I'll take it to the Father. Isn't that amazing? That's what Jesus Christ does as our great high priest. That is the unfolding plan of Scripture. Remember, we've touched on this a number of times as we've come through Hebrews. Remember Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4? Paul writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, that's believers, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Here's the deal. If you are a Gentile believer, which the vast majority in this room we are, in Jesus we were chosen when? Way long time ago before the world. Isn't that amazing? The old covenant believers, the new covenant believers, God planned all this. He planned the old covenant priestly system. But that was to point forward to whom? Jesus Christ, the great high priest. You see how God is unfolding this plan of redemption. Now, a lot of times people go, well, why did God choose the Jews? Why did he go through all that charade? Well... We can look in Scripture and it says, it's to remind you and I how great our God is. To see how sinful we are and how rebellious we are. If you read the Old Testament, you'll find that. And you should find as you read the Old Testament, that's me. And we realize that. And so all of these were given for our instruction. But God gives an answer of why he chooses Believers in the Old Testament and the New Testament. For the Old Testament, why did God choose the Jews? Why did he choose Abraham and his descendants? Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 answers that question. He's speaking to the Jewish nation. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Verse 7, listen to this one. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You know what he's saying? Let me put it in the vernacular. You weren't so special. But let me paraphrase it. But I loved you. And I chose you. Even though you were a rebellious bunch of ragamuffins. You ever read the Old Testament and how Israel treated God? That's what they were. But you ever looked at your own life? You're a spiritual ragamuffin too. You're rebellious. Oh, I want to do the right things. And then before you know it, some temptation, and we're like, squirrel! <laughs> Off in sin. Why did God choose believers in the new... Oh, excuse me. Let me finish one other thing. Deuteronomy 6, 7. Look at verse 8. It was because the Lord loves you, and he is keeping his oath. Oh, that theme again, Right? The oath in the Old Covenant that he made to Abraham, he's like, I'm doing it because I promised. I'm carrying this through. I'm putting up with you when you rebel, when you turn from me. And I will still redeem you and provide you salvation. Now, ever wondered why God would choose you? Maybe you think you're better than the average. I don't. I look at my heart and it's, whew, wow, why would he choose me? Ephesians chapter 1, go all the way to verse 11. In him, that's in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. We have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And here's the answer, verse 12. 
so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Why did God choose you? For his glory. Simple as that. I got no better answer. I have a biblical answer. But do you see the similarity between the old covenant and the new? God chooses because he wants to. It's for his own good purposes and his glory. We may never understand other than that. And that's all the answer we need. There's nothing that God sees special in us. And so the author of Hebrews is reminding us of these truths. And he's reminding them that we have a new and better covenant in Jesus Christ. This was planned from before the foundation of the world. And remember, guys, the old covenant was designed to show you that God had something better in store. Look at verse 22 of chapter 7. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. He's like, we got it all now in Jesus. God's made these oaths. He's given us a promise. We can take this one to the bank of heaven. And I can't help but think, remember when Jesus was on this earth? He said, Matthew chapter 6. He said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But do what? Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Let me help you apply that. So often that's put to you know, giving and your finances and all of that. Let me give you a covenant view of that. What's in heaven today, sitting at the right hand of God the Father? Jesus Christ, the great high priest. That's where you lay your treasures up. Rest in him. Look to him. Lay up the treasures there. Forget all this money stuff and the physical stuff of this world. Look to Jesus. It has a far better application. Now why is the pastor telling us this? Because I spend an awful lot of time in my week talking with people who think, but, but I have to do this or else God won't accept me. Step forward. Let me just slap you a few times. That's not a biblical truth. You don't earn your way to God. Just as the Jew in the Old Covenant, could they waltz into the Holy of Holies? Now they'd be deader than a doornail instantly. Because you cannot draw near to God on your terms. We cannot earn our way to God. We must depend in faith on our great high priest. He did it. He's my righteousness. He did everything, and God accepts me because of my older brother, Jesus Christ. You ever tempted to despair? Oh, I've done really well, but then, man, last week, I, it wasn't such a good week. I can't imagine God's really happy with me. Remember this. Rest in what Jesus did. His record, his righteousness, his purity, not your own. In faith, rest in what he's done. Your per- salvation does not depend upon your per- performance. It depends upon the performance of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Notice what he says in verse 25. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost all those who draw near to God through him, Jesus Christ, since he always lives to make intercession for them. My salvation does not depend upon me, my works, my goodness. It depends upon the goodness of my great high priest, Jesus Christ. Now, so what? The author has shown us in chapter 7 of Hebrews that Jesus is the ultimate high priest. 
Remember last week, we talked about Melchizedek. No father, no mother, no genealogy. That's why Jesus could serve as great high priest. Melchizedek, he had no beginning or end. Jesus is an eternal high priest. Abraham, Jesus is better than him. Abraham ties to Melchizedek. Jesus is in the line of Melchizedek. And so Jesus is way better than anything Abraham brought to the table. Look at verse 26. Jesus is the priest that we need. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He's all that. Verse 27. Jesus is reminded that he's not like those sinful guys in the Old Covenant. They had to go and purify themselves before they could come and serve for you. Jesus entered the holy places because he was holy, innocent, and unstained by sin. And that's why he can say he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. That is the pure gospel. The reality that Jesus has done it all. You see, being a Christian is not about good works or giving your money or coming to church. Those are all good things that will help you grow. But they will not earn merit before God of heaven. It's only as you rest and trust in faith in what Christ has done. That's true biblical gospel Christianity. It's completely different from religion. We do not practice religion around here. We practice Christianity. Belief in Christ Jesus. You see, in religion, you obey in order to be accepted by God. We fear what he might do. If you talk to a Muslim, look at the fear that they live in of not doing enough. However, the gospel motivates us to obedient Christian living. Jesus did it all. That doesn't mean I go live like the devil. It's because he has set me free. I now get to live for him. And that's a completely different attitude. You see, in religion, I obey in order to get things from God. You ever been waiting for something or hoping you might get a blessing and you've been reading your Bible and then you forget for a couple of days and it doesn't happen and then you're like, oh, well, I quit reading my Bible so God did that. Let me slap you. God accepts you how? Because of what Jesus did. Not because you didn't read your Bible yesterday. You need to read your Bible to be reminded of the truth of that. That's why we read our scriptures and draw near to God. You see, the gospel tells me what Jesus Christ has done for me. His grace teaches me that I now get to obey in joyful obedience. A number of years ago, there was an evangelism explosion. We did it. Um... And it has a diagnostic question. It's this. If you were to die tonight and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? Now, I was reminded the other day on a video, you can find it on YouTube, The Man on the Middle Cross. And Alistair Begg shared that question. And he says, if you answer that in the first person, you've gone wrong. I believe. Isn't that how most people answer it? We need to answer it in the third person. Because Jesus died for me. Doesn't sound much different, but it makes a change. And Alistair Begg, he does it in this great Scottish brogue. You can YouTube it or search it on YouTube. The man on the middle cross. And he's great. 
But let me share with you basically the story that he shares on that video, and it's this. And he shares the reality of the thief on the cross. Remember Luke chapter 23? That criminal who's hanging on the cross next to Jesus? And Alistair puts it this way. He says, you know, when I get up to heaven, I'd love to find that fellow one day. How'd that shake out for you, Mr. Thief? Think about it. You were cussing Jesus out with your friend. You've never been to a Bible study. You never attended a church or a synagogue. You never got baptized. You never knew a thing about church membership or church doctrine. And yet you made it. How? And Alistair goes on and he tells his story. And he says, imagine the angel at the gate of heaven. The thief appears at the gate. And what are you doing here? And the thief's like, oh. (laughs) Remember, a few minutes before, today you'll be with me in paradise. That was it. Imagine that angel. Well, do you understand the doctrine of justification? Never heard of it. Nope, never heard of it. Um, hang on a second, let me go get my supervisor. So the angel brings in the other supervisor, angel, and comes up and explains the situation. And the supervisor angel says, you know, in heaven there are certain requirements to come in. And, hmm, okay, are you clear on these doctrines? He's like, I, I don't know any of them. And finally, in frustration, he goes, well, why are you here? And you know what the thief replied? Because of the man on the middle cross said I could come. That, my brothers and sisters, is salvation. It's not what we do. It's 110% what Jesus Christ did on that cross. Get that. Grasp it. Don't let it go. That's the pure gospel reality. And that's what the author of Hebrews is showing us. You see, if you and I, we do not preach the gospel to ourselves every day and all day, you know what will happen? You'll begin to get better and better. And then you'll begin to believe that, you know, I'm not so bad. Maybe God's lucky to have me. Really? You are not any more special than, remember that? It's all about Jesus and his record and his righteousness. And we must keep the gospel forefront every moment of every day. And you will be amazed. That's the great exchange. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to become my sin. So that what? I get the full righteousness of Christ. That's Mark's paraphrase. That's the gospel. Here's... Two resolutions for you to think about and apply this. One, believe God's word alone. Resolve today to trust only in the word of God as you read it. This chapter 7, it was complicated. It's not the easiest one to go through, but I hope I have made it clear by the power of the Spirit, the meaning and how it points to your Savior, Jesus Christ. Remember, I said Hebrews is about revelation and redemption. Revelation. The author of Hebrews is showing us the revelation of God that has been from the beginning of the scriptures all the way through Christ. 
That Jesus is the redemption, the only redemption we need, and the only redemption that will work as we rest in the man on the middle cross. So believe God's word first. Secondly, rest only in the completed, finished work of Christ on your behalf for your salvation. Do not depend upon your goodness or your works. I hope they are coming out because if you are a believer, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, that ought to be oozing all over. Praise God for His glory. But that doesn't earn you squat. That just brings glory to God. It's all what Christ did on your behalf. Do not be misled by the lies that come from the world. When people look at you and go, you're not too bad. God must like you. I'm not holy like you. I couldn't get into heaven. Just grab that person by the throat and go, it's only by Jesus that I'm here. Bring them back to the hope of the gospel. And I think, brothers and sisters, that is the message of Hebrews 7. Jesus Christ is all I need. He is my great high priest. He has gotten me to the holy of holies in the heavenlies. What an amazing thing 